I will be reading from Exodus 3, verse 1 to 12. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said to him, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And now, Carmen Imes, please come up. I've got a mic. You can keep that one. Thank you. Hurried footsteps in the darkness. A knock at a closed door. With a small hand. Then again, more urgently. The door opens a crack. Without even waiting for a greeting, the young girl whispers fiercely, It's time! Shifra feels in the darkness for her bag, gathers it with her, and follows the girl into the night air. As the two wind between mud-brick homes in search of the girl's own home, Shifra quietly gathers the information she needs. When did the pain start? How often do they come? Has your mother eaten anything? Has her water broken? They arrive and slip inside. Shifra always works behind closed doors with no men watching. This time, she has no assistance save this young girl barely six years from her own birth. The, it's too dangerous to involve others. The fewer who know about this baby, the better. The girl now brings Shifra hot water, cold water, clean rags, whatever she asks for. A midwife is an unlikely revolutionary. Far from the halls of power, her only weapons are herbs and hot compresses. Her only weapons are skilled hands. But this one has fire in her eyes and rebellion in her bones. She will not. She refuses to, to do what this king has asked her to do. It is preposterous. Kill baby boys? 
No, her years of training, the long hours spent watching and prodding, comforting and intervening, were not to end life, but to bring it, to protect it. No man, no matter how high his throne, could tell her otherwise. Who did he think he was to sponsor death in his dominion? God would not look kindly on his legacy. Shifra's greatest fear is offending God, not Pharaoh. Her eyes are on him, and that's what empowers her bravery. And so this time, under the cover of darkness, Shifra and the baby's sister and her mother— we'll call her the daughter of Levi, witness another miracle. Every birth is a miracle, but today they're participating in a miracle. In defiance to the king, in defiance to his preposterous edict, they are bringing forth life. Before morning, a newborn cry fills the night air, announcing another successful birth. Shifra stifles stifles his mouth, trying not to suffocate him. He is indeed a boy. She lays him on the cushioned bricks and softly sings a blessing over him while she rubs his body clean. Later, she gathers her things and issues instructions to his older sister. Hold your brother after he's finished nursing. Don't let him cry. No one must know about this birth. This will be the most important secret our young heroine has ever had to carry. They must be careful. This is dangerous business, birthing. It it always has been. But this time, the dangers are more than wrapped umbilical cords or failure to progress or excessive bleeding. This time, they must stand guard against the bloody sword of Pharaoh and against the suffocating waters of the Nile. In their own way, Shifra and Miriam are freedom fighters. In the light of a new day, The daughter of Levi looks at her sleeping son, milk still dribbling from the corner of his mouth, and she sees he is good. Every child is, every one a triumph of creation, every one worthy of the Creator's pronouncement, good. She spends her days indoors, away from prying eyes of the overseers, who would surely notice how her shape has changed. A second look could be fatal for her son. The boy's sister was her lifeline then, drawing water from the well, her small frame bending under the buckets of water. She understood what was at stake. If she spilled their secret, her brother's life could be over. On that long night with Shifra, the midwife's courage had lit fire in her own eyes. She was an accomplice, not in murder, but in anti-murder. A partner in the revolution, a freedom fighter. But they couldn't hide him forever. The daughter of Levi knew that, and so did her own daughter, so they devised a plan. It was risky. But what choice did they have? Pharaoh had told them to throw baby boys in the Nile. So they would, gently. 
The baby's mother crafted a tiny ark out of reeds from the Nile. Just like the ark in the old stories, she coated it with tar to keep the water out. And just like the other ark, she hoped that this one would rescue her son from a watery death. She nestled it among the reeds along the shoreline, and then the boy's sister stood at a distance to watch. It would be too risky for, for the child's own mother to stand there. An adult hanging out by the water would cause unwanted attention. But this girl was a child. Usually children are overlooked, so no one would bother about her. But she wasn't playing. She was standing guard and standing her ground, bracing herself for whatever might happen. What? went through the young girl's mind when the daughter of Pharaoh herself approached the river. Was she terrified, or was this all part of the plan? No Egyptian in their right mind would risk their life to save a Hebrew baby. It was too dangerous. It had to be someone exempt from Pharaoh's edict, someone above the law. Ironically, the only safe place in all of Egypt was Pharaoh's own household. If they could find an ally, there was only one way to find out without jeopardizing the entire family. At the edge of the Nile, the daughter of Pharaoh sees the basket. She sends her servant girl to get it. And time slows. She opens the basket she sees the baby. Instantly, she knows what has happened here. A Hebrew family has dared to hide their son in the only place that her father's men wouldn't dare to look, wouldn't think of looking. In that moment, her decision mimics the decision Shifra made on the birthing bricks. His life is in her hands. Whose side is she on? Has she absorbed the feelings of her father towards the Hebrews? Does she despise this minority? Does she see this child as a threat to the empire? Have her father's murderous policies distorted her vision of what is good? They have not. She hears the baby crying, and she has compassion on him. She sees that he's good. Like every other woman in this story, the daughter of Pharaoh stands against the empire. Like every other woman in this story, named and unnamed, the daughter of Pharaoh sees how God sees. She takes pity on him. And his sister, with a sigh of relief, springs into valiant action. Because in a split moment, she understands the need of the princess, the need of her brother, and the need of her own mother. And an idea comes to her. She approaches the princess and offers, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Her stroke of genius is the greatest gift her mother will ever receive. The daughter of Levi, who has hidden her child for fear of discovery by Pharaoh's army, is now going to be employed by a member of Pharaoh's household to feed her own child? And now, 
As the wealth of Egypt trickles into her home, mother's milk will trickle into her son's belly. Two daughters, the daughter of Pharaoh and the daughter of Levi, conspire to mother this child. But it's not until his nursing years are over, probably three years later, that the child even gets a name. Pharaoh's daughter adopts him, and for her, his life started the moment she pulled him out of the waters rather than throwing him in. Moses, one who draws out, will be his name. Think of it. By naming him Moses, the daughter of Pharaoh memorializes her own defiance of her father's edict. She has drawn him out instead of throwing him in. She too is a freedom fighter, and she prophesies his calling as one who will draw his own people out. And that river, that river where Pharaoh intended to drown the baby boys, before too long, it will turn to blood. And the firstborn sons of the Egyptians will die instead of the Hebrews. And the reeds that hid the baby will mark the people's journey into freedom while swallowing up the army that chases them. Well, we tend to call it the Red Sea. The Hebrew Bible always calls it the Sea of Reeds. The Hebrews' escape from a watery death mirrors Moses' own deliverance in the reeds of the Nile. If I would have asked you before, who is the freedom fighter in Exodus, most of you would have said, naturally, Moses. But before he even has a name, women are the freedom fighters. Midwife, mother, sister, daughter, servant. Together they defy injustice, refusing to align themselves with the oppressive policies of the empire. They hold no weapons but their own courage. They refuse to let a powerful dictator redefine what is good. Quietly but defiantly, they do what they must. The story of the Exodus unfolds in two movements. The first movement is the story of Moses' rescue from Pharaoh's attempt to put him to death. The second movement is the story of Israel's rescue from Pharaoh's attempt to work them to death. Israel's rescuer is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remarkably, Moses' rescuers are these women, acting without divine command and at great risk to themselves. Rich and poor, young and old, Egyptian and Hebrew, they band together to do what is right. In the first movement, Miriam takes her stand by the edge of the Nile, silently confronting the daughter of Pharaoh with an injustice infanticide, and offering her a solution. May I go to find someone to nurse him for you? The daughter of Pharaoh responds, go. And then this same member of the royal household says to the daughter of Levi about her son, let him go. In the second movement of the Exodus story, Moses takes his stand at the edge of the Nile and waits for Pharaoh silently confronting him with an injustice, the oppressive policies toward the Hebrew people. 
And he offers a solution. May we go into the wilderness and worship Yahweh. Pharaoh responds, no. And it takes 10 disastrous plagues, including the loss of his own son, before Pharaoh will finally tell the people to go. In the first story, God is silent, and women work, and Moses goes free. The women see and hear and send and take pity. In the second story, God works, and that work is described in many of the same ways. God sees, God hears, God sends, and God has compassion. You and I live in a world marked by suffering and sorrow, injustice, and the brokenness that inevitably results. Sometimes God chooses to accomplish his work through dramatic displays of his own power. Most of the time, God works through ordinary people using ordinary means. Moses himself is really quite ordinary. When he's grown and God calls him to return to Egypt, Moses gives half a dozen reasons why he's unqualified. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? When Moses' eyes are on himself, he's looking in the wrong direction. His life story had already included half a dozen case studies of ordinary women who refused to let oppressive policies determine their behavior. They did the right thing, acting in the fear of God rather than the fear of man. You might feel ordinary, but God calls ordinary men and women to participate in his work. Whether you've heard an audible voice or you just see what needs to be done, do it. When our eyes are on God rather than ourselves, he empowers us to participate in his work of redemption. God responded to Moses' question, who am I? With a surprising answer, I will be with you. God's answer had nothing to do with Moses' qualifications to be a freedom fighter. Moses' skills and abilities were not the point. Whether we see him or not, whether we hear him or not, whether we feel him or not, God is always with those who carry out his work of resistance and redemption. When we look around us, the brokenness of our world is obvious. We see the struggle of some of our neighbors to ever feel fully at home because of the color of their skin. We see the struggle of others to live wisely. They're raking in money so fast they can't spend it fast enough, and soon they're enslaved in addictions to drugs and wild living. We know that every day, the lives of very young children and unwanted seniors are being snuffed out by a world that sees them as a burden. We know that be behind closed doors, but with cameras rolling, women and children are right now being held against their will and asked to do unimaginable things 
to satisfy the lust of abusers sitting and staring longingly at their own screens. We know that our so-called criminal justice system does more to further traumatize those convicted of crimes than actually restoring these men and women to their God-given potential. We know, we, know that we know of children who are not safe in their homes, who need families to care for them. We know people who are isolated because of coronavirus, who need practical help and friendship. We know these things and they bother us. And they should. Somebody needs to do something. That someone is you. You are the freedom fighter. What burden has God laid on your heart? What brokenness do you see? Do you feel unqualified? Or do you worry that the risks are too great? Miriam was likely only six years old when she joined the fight against injustice. The risks to herself were outweighed by the risks to her own brother. So she and her mother did what they had to do. Shifra, one of two midwives named in Exodus, refused to obey the king's edict because she knew that a higher power was watching her. She feared God rather than man and got busy doing his work. Pharaoh's own daughter used her privilege to save just one life. She could have said, what difference does it make if I save one child? There are so many. But she did what she could. And that one boy grew up to be the deliverer of the entire nation. Like many of us, Moses was reluctant to get involved. The story of Moses' miraculous rescue as a child is not all we're told of his growing up years. Briefly, Moses entered the fight for justice himself, but he was clumsy and ineffective. He saw the wrongs of Pharaoh's oppressive policies and he sprang into action, striking the Egyptian who was striking a Hebrew. But killing one Egyptian failed to dismantle an entire system of injustice. Moses was unprepared for the cost of the fight against oppression. When his deed was discovered, he fled, crossing the wilderness. His first attempt had ended poorly, with a dead Egyptian, a snarky Hebrew, and a death warrant on his own head. When he fled Egypt... I wonder, did he vow never to go back? God's call revealed that Moses' eyes were fixated in the wrong place, on himself. He felt functionally useless. But it didn't matter who Moses was. His status or his history of success or how articulate he was or the likelihood that he would be accepted, it only mattered that Yahweh promised to be with him. That's all that matters for any of us. I'd like to think that when Moses arrived back at Sinai with the rest of the Israelites in tow, he wept. In his first encounter at the burning bush, Moses was so preoccupied with himself, he almost missed the moment. 
He had doubted that he was the right one for the job, but Yahweh assured him of his presence. When Moses returned to Sinai with God's promises fulfilled, he couldn't get enough of God's presence. He was captivated. He disappeared for longer and longer periods of time up on the mountain. And when he came down, his face was glowing. No longer do we see him as a navel gazer, but as one who saw God and lived to tell about it. Most of us will not be able to point to a moment, a burning bush or a fiery cloud or a voice from heaven telling us exactly what to do. No, most of us will engage in God's work simply because we see what needs to be done and we do it. We'll be able to do this more effectively if we're not preoccupied with ourselves. If I'm worried about my own qualifications, I'm ironically thinking too highly of myself, as though I'm the magic ingredient, thinking it depends on me. It doesn't. It depends on God. God is with me, and that's all that matters. Will we cower in the corner, or will we take our stand? Are we willing to take risks to promote human flourishing? When our eyes are on God rather than ourselves, he empowers us to participate in his work of redemption. All it takes to be a freedom fighter is the willingness to take a risk to do what needs to be done, knowing that God is with us. Let me pray for you. God, this story challenges us. It hits so close to our hearts because we feel unqualified. We feel like the risks are too great. God, would you show us what we need to see? Would you grant us courage to resist a world system that uses people rather than setting them free to flourish? Would you give us the assurance that your presence is with us and you're giving us everything we need to do your work. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you and of being called your children. Find us faithful. Amen.